Well, good morning, church. My name is Stuart. I get the privilege of serving as lead pastor here. I'm so thankful that you've chosen to worship with us this morning. If you have your Bible, open up to Jonah chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2. Uh, we are in a series in the book of Jonah. We're going to spend four weeks here, so there's four chapters in this book, and we're in chapter 2 today. This story is set largely at sea. The first half of the book is set uh, at sea. And I told you last week about some of my favorite movies, including uh, uh, one that's set at sea. But another movie that comes to mind when I read the book of Jonah is this movie called The Perfect Storm. It came out another, also about 20 years ago. I think that was the peak of cinema. It came out uh, 20 years ago. And it's the story of this boat, uh, this fishing boat in the, in the Northeast that gets stuck in the perfect storm. And there's a scene in this movie. I won't go into the details. It's not relevant today. But there's a scene where the camera kind of zooms out on this fishing boat. And they're in 40-foot swells, which is just unheard of, massive waves. And when the camera zooms out and you see the height of these waves and the tiny size of the boat, as a viewer, you are overwhelmed with how desperate their situation is. You realize how hopeless their situation is. And that's kind of where we find ourselves in our story of Jonah Today And so without any more introduction, I want to read chapter 2 together, and then uh, we'll pray, and then we'll dive in and see what the Lord has to say. Jonah chapter 2, beginning of verse 1, says this. It says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord. Out of my distress he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up. You brought up my life out from the pit. O Lord, my God. Verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came up to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Verse 10, and the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that even as we are in the middle of this story and in the middle of our own story of our lives and story of history, like the song we just sang, we know how it ends. We know that we serve a victorious God, a God who rules and reigns over the universe and will make all things right one day. We find great comfort in that. As we look this morning in this passage of about a man caught in a storm, caught in a difficulty, and a man in need of rescue, I pray that we would see ourselves here and you would teach us what you taught Jonah in this time. So would you speak to us, Lord? Would you encourage us with your word? Would you, would you challenge us? Would you call us to repentance? Lord, would you be honored as we dive into this text together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So just catching up, let's recap where we've been in chapter 1. You guys will remember. So Jonah is a prophet, right? Jonah is a prophet. It was somebody who speaks for God. And God has given Jonah a message. He says, I want you to go to the people of Nineveh, and I want you to proclaim a message of repentance. Jonah has one problem, though, and that's that he hates the people of Nineveh, and he wants no business doing this assignment. He doesn't want 
to go. So instead of going to Nineveh like God calls him to, Jonah instead gets on a boat in a port city called Tarshish, and he goes out to sea. And the text even says that he goes so far as to hide down in the bottom of the, fit, of the, of the boat to hide from God. But as we said last week, our main idea was that our gracious God pursues rebellious people, and so God graciously pursues Jonah. And he pursues him through a storm. He, he stirs up the wind and the waves against the boat to the point where it gets Jonah and the other sailors' attention. And the, the story goes on to tell that eventually it got so bad that they finally decided the only way to get out of the storm is to throw Jonah overboard. And that's exactly what they did. They throw him into the ocean. And so that's where we find ourselves this week. Jonah has been thrown overboard and he expects to die. And in his moment of need, he cries out to God for help. God's answer is a very unusual answer, but God answers the prayer. God answers his prayer for help by sending a fish. A giant fish comes and swallows him whole, and Jonah is now in the belly of this fish. In our text this morning, the vast majority of it is basically Jonah's prayer from the belly of fish. And this is a prayer of thanksgiving. It's a prayer of gratitude, which is not what you would expect from the belly of a fish, right? You wouldn't expect a lot of joy coming from there. But given the alternative of being dead, Jonah's going, God, this is awesome. Thank you. I appreciate it. And so Jonah spends his time in this passage thanking God for salvation. Jonah's salvation is meant to teach us something. Jonah's story is meant to teach us something. And uh, the Bible is not written just in abstract or in a vacuum. It's written very much for us. And we're meant to see ourselves in this story. And the author of the book of Jonah intends for us to see us in Jonah. And so as we dive into this story this morning, we're going to see two things that Jonah experiences and then hopefully draw out some parallels in our own life. The first thing that we're going to see is Jonah's rescue and then his response. Jonah's rescue and his response. And Jonah is rescued by God. And this leads us to a question. The, the obvious question is, why does God rescue Jonah? What, what, what happens? What are the, the mechanics that causes God to save Jonah from this ocean crashing down upon him? Is it because Jonah was good and did the right thing, but because of Jonah's good works and all that he had done for God, perhaps that's why God chose to save him. I think our text shows us that's not the case at all, is it? In fact, Jonah doesn't do anything right in this story, does he? Every time we see Jonah, with one small exception, he's doing everything wrong. Jonah's not obeying. Jonah's not doing good works. Jonah's not doing anything good. He'd run from God in disobedience. He tried to hide from God in the bottom of the ship. Nothing Jonah does in this entire book is right or good. Everywhere we look, he's doing the wrong thing. So Jonah isn't rescued because of his works. Perhaps it's because he was such a great guy. You know, just a stand-up dude with good character, someone who's, who's just intrinsically good. You know that's not it either, don't you? Jonah's not a good dude at all. The whole reason Jonah is running from God is because he hates the Ninevites. He's running from God, we're going to find out in chapter 4, because he's afraid that the people of Nineveh will repent and God will spare them. And God does, Jonah doesn't want that at all. He wants the Ninevites dead. He says, I wish you'd kill them, God. I'm not going because you might save them if I go. Jonah's not a good dude. He's not a good character. No, we find out the only reason that Jonah is saved is because he cries out, 
in faith. And the lesson for you and for I and for Jonah is that salvation comes by faith. Jonah is saved because he cries out in faith, and we're meant to see that, that Jonah's not good, he doesn't do the right thing, he's not a good person, he's not really worth saving, but God does it anyways because Jonah cries out in faith. You put all this together, you see there's three things that Jonah has to come to grips with in order for God to rescue him. There's three things Jonah has to come to grips with in order for God to rescue him. The first thing he has to do is he has to recognize that he is hopelessly lost. Jonah's got to come to a place where he realizes his situation is dire. His circumstances are bad. Out in the middle of the ocean meant certain death for Jonah. There's no Coast Guard helicopter coming with someone to jump out in scuba gear to rescue. That's not happening, right, in the 8th 8th century B.C. That's That's not happening for Jonah. He is hopelessly lost. Second, Jonah has to come to grips with the fact that he's not going to be able to get himself out of this problem. Jonah's in a problem that he can't solve. He's in a situation that he can't fix. He can't swim himself to shore. There's nothing he can do to solve his predicament. And the last thing Jonah has to acknowledge is that his only hope is for God to intervene. His only hope is for God to intervene. When you're facing certain death with no chance of escaping it on your own, a miracle is the only option. And as I said, we're supposed to see ourselves in Jonah's story. And you and I face a similar predicament that Jonah faced. Just like Jonah, our whole lives, we are all hopelessly lost. Every human being who has ever been born is hopelessly lost. Instead of being lost at sea, though, we're separated from God by our sins, the Bible tells us. Sins, a, a Bible word, it just means the things that we do that violate God's laws and God's demands for our lives. And our sins create a barrier between us and God. They, they have us leave. The separation, you can visualize the separation as God casts out Adam and Eve from the garden. That was home. God said, you've got to go away from here. You can't be here with me anymore because of what you've done. And we repeat that over and over and over and over again in our lives, don't we? Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6 says, All we are like sheep who have gone astray. We have turned everyone, it says, no exceptions, everyone to his own way. In fact, the Bible describes our state as so hopeless that it calls us already dead. Jonah was almost dead. The Bible says we are already dead. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning verse 1 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It doesn't get any more dire than that, does it? It doesn't get any more hopeless than that. Our sinful choices have made us destined for judgment. We're like inmates on death row with our execution scheduled, with no appeals left to make. The only difference is that when God judges us, his judgment is eternal. Friends, we all, every person who's ever been born, is born into a hopeless situation. Second, like Jonah, we've got to realize that we can't save ourselves. 
We can't save ourselves. It's one thing to realize you're in a tough spot. It's a whole other thing to realize that you can't get out of it. That's when the desperation really starts to set in. But some of us think that we can still work our way out of our predicament, don't we? Some of us have convinced ourselves that we can do it. We believe deep down we can turn our life around. I just need one more chance, God, and I'll, I'll fix it. The thinking goes, I know, I know I've made some bad choices, Lord, but if you just give me some more time, I'll, I'll do enough good things to get back in your good graces. I'll clean myself up. I'll be good enough for you. And so we go back to trying to work our way out of this situation. Maybe that means cleaning up your language or you pour the bottle down the sink for the 10th time. You commit to showing up at church more often than you have or you even drop a 20 in the box in the back on your way out. You stop doing whatever it is you think that's bad in your life that's made God angry with you and you start doing the things that you think are going to make him happy with you and you just hope against hope that it's enough. I'll fix this, we say. Here's the thing. All of our good works, all of our effort, all of our trying, it doesn't make one bit of difference. It doesn't help at all. In fact, the Bible says God views our righteous works like a filthy rag. Isaiah 64, 6, we have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. It's just kind of just smearing the dirt around is all we're really doing. We're not fixing anything. We cannot earn God's favor. We cannot earn God's kindness. There's nothing we can do that will make a bit of difference in our standing before God. We can't get ourselves out of our problem. And so third, like Jonah, we must realize that God intervening on our behalf is our only hope, right? It's our only hope that God would intervene. And in his kindness, God has intervened. This is the good news. Uh, the first two points were the bad news. This is the good news. God has intervened. Jesus Christ, God himself has come down to earth, put on flesh, become a human. He was sent, the Bible says, on a rescue mission. In his own words, Jesus says, the son of man came to seek and save the lost. He's the guy in the Coast Guard chopper. He does this by meeting all of these needs that we've acknowledged here that we can't meet. We were lost, so instead of making us find him, he comes to us. He leaves heaven, puts on a body like ours, and roams our world. Then, because we can't be good enough to fix our problems and to save ourselves, he's good enough for us. He lives a perfect life, never sinning, never failing, never disobeying God, never violating his law. And then finally, as we realize we need a miracle or else we are doomed, Jesus performs a miracle for us just in time. He goes to a cross and is killed to pay the price for our sins, removing our guilt from us. And then his body, his dead, lifeless body is put in a grave. And then three days later, his body comes back to life and he walks out of that grave, living and breathing. Jesus, in fact, he points to this story of Jonah that we're talking about today as his central miracle for his entire ministry. He says, this is it. Matthew chapter 12, he's speaking to some religious leaders. In verse 38, he says, some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Jesus saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. What they mean by that is we want to see a miracle. Jesus, will you do a miracle to prove that you are who you say you are? And Jesus responded in verse 39, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. No sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. 
For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What does Jesus' rescue of us look like? What does Jesus' salvation for us look like? It looks a whole lot like Jonah's rescue. It looks like Jesus going into a grave dead, died on a cross for our sins, but then coming back to life, defeating Satan's sin and death once and for all. And the Bible teaches that if you put your faith in Jesus' death on the cross and you believe that he rose from the dead, you will be saved. But here's the key. In order to live out this step, in order to actually put your faith in Jesus, you have to call out to Jesus. And in order to call out to Jesus, you must first recognize what we've already said, that you're in a desperate situation and you cannot save yourself. And that's hard. I've said this already, but that's hard to believe for some of us, isn't it? About 30 years ago, maybe a little bit longer, a hundred miles west of here in, uh, in Live Oak, or near Live Oak, there's a, uh, a music park, campground-type place called the Spirit of the Swanee Music Park. Maybe you've been there. They, back in the day, I don't know if they still do it, but back in the day, they, they used to host these giant country music festivals there. And you would go and you would camp. You would bring your camper there, and they'd have like a weekend full of concerts. It's basically like Woodstock for rednecks, okay? <laughs> and so my family would go. Uh, we went several years in a row, and I remember one year um, going. That year, I had gotten a toy guitar for Christmas, and I brought this little toy guitar with me uh, to the concert, and you had to walk from your campsite. It's a big place. You had to walk from your campsite to the, this giant field that was gated and had, a, had a, uh, a stage and lights and sound and all that kind of stuff. And I don't know what I was going to do with the guitar. I thought maybe they were going to bring me on stage or whatever, but I, I bring this little toy guitar. I'm six, seven, eight years old. I don't know how old I am. But we get to the security gate, and the security guard says, you can't bring that in to the concert. It's got to stay outside. Well, I'm devastated. And he says, don't worry. I'll just keep it right here at the security tent. When the concert's over, you could come and get it, and I'll hold it for you. So relieved, I go into the show, and we watch the concert. Sawyer Brown was a headlining act. If you've been around country music for a while, you know who they are. And uh, the, 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 they play the final song, they strum the final chord, they leave the stage, the lights on the stage go off, and all I can think about in my little six or seven or eight-year-old brain is getting my guitar. And so I sprint out the gate, straight to the security tent, get the guitar from the security guard, and I hear something funny. I hear music come back on. What my little kid brain didn't understand is there's such a thing in big concerts called an encore. Well, my parents anticipated that this might happen, so when I sprinted out the concert venue, they stayed right there and waited for the music to come back on. Now we've got a problem, because there's no re-entry into the concert, so I'm stuck, separated from my family. The concert finally does end, and I stand there at the gate watching the crowds of people come out, watching them, watching them, looking for my parents. No doubt, all the while inside, they're looking in there for me, and we don't find each other, and as the time goes on, less and less people are coming out of the gate, and I don't see my parents, and eventually there's almost nobody left inside. I can see inside the gate, and so I just assume I've missed them. They've gone back to the campsite. I'll just walk myself back to the campsite. Every parent's horrified now. <laughs> so that's what I did. Why? Because I was convinced I wasn't lost. I was convinced this is not a big deal, right? And I was convinced that I could sort it out on my own. My wife is quietly nodding to herself, going, yep, I could see that. 
So I start walking. I follow the big crowd, and I presume I could find myself through. I mean, it's the middle of the night. It's got to be 10 or 11 o'clock at night at this point in this campground in the middle of the woods in the panhandle of Florida, and I'm just navigating these dirt roads trying to find my campsite with no flashlight, with no map, long before cell phones were a thing. And let me tell you all, I got lost. But I didn't want to admit I was lost. That, for some reason, to me, felt like failure. It felt like a, I was giving up. It was so bad, in fact, that at one point, a deputy sheriff drove up in a police car, rolled down his window, and said, son, are you lost? I looked him square in the eye and said, no, sir, I'm not. <laughs> he looked at me kind of crossways for a minute. and I'll never forget this. This is crazy to me. He should probably have his badge taken away. He rolled up his window and said, all right, and then drove away. <laughs> Left me an elementary kid roaming the woods by himself. The longer the time goes on, the more I am willing to acknowledge I am very much lost. And I absolutely don't have what it takes to get myself back home. And it's at that exact moment when I come to grips with this that I see the square headlights of my parents' Ford Aerostar minivan, silver. My dad pulls up, flings open the door, jumps out, and grabs me. Some of us are wandering through this world lost as can be, unwilling to admit that we're lost, and even if we are willing to admit we're lost, unwilling to give up hope that we can fix it. And our Heavenly Father is saying, you are hopelessly lost. It's worse than you can imagine. And there's no chance of you fixing it on your own. And the call for you today, if that's you that's fighting against God's call in your life, to turn and run into the Father's arms. If that's you, I want to tell you, now is the time to give up. God can and will and desires and wants to rescue you. But he can only do it if you cry out to him. Like Jonah did, verse one or verse two of our chapter, he says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. So too, God will answer you if you cry out to him. Here's the thing, church. If you're a believer in this room, you're a Christian here with us today, you've already been through all of this, you've already cried out to God and put your faith in Jesus, you know what I'm talking about. But that's salvation that God offers. That moment when you realize that you've been forgiven, that moment that you realize that you've been made whole, it produces gratitude, doesn't it? It produces deep, deep gratitude. That's what salvation should do to us. Salvation produces gratitude. And just as my dad showed up at just the right time in the same way God showed up for Jonah at just the right time, at the last possible moment, God steps in and rescues him. Verse 9, Jonah responds with gratitude. He says, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. It's Jonah's response. He knows how bad things were, how awful things could have gotten. He says in, uh, what is it, in verse 6, starting in verse 5, actually, he says, the waters closed in over my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. You get a little picture of seaweed wrapped around him. He said he was at the roots of the mountains, which is a figurative way of saying at the bottom of the ocean, right where the mountains start, the bottom of the sea, and then protrude up out of the ocean and into the sky. 
Jonah knew how far from God he was. Jonah realizes quite literally the depths of God's grace towards him. What can Jonah do but say thank you? I think the same should be true for us who have been saved by God, right? What can we do but say thank you? Thank you. Thank you. A salvation that cost God so much and required so little from us. A salvation that gives us more than we could ever imagine. A salvation so one-sided that Jesus does everything. We do nothing. A salvation that's so secure that nothing can take it from us. A salvation so complete that we were made perfect, the Bible says, in the sight of God. It's a salvation so enduring that we will live in the presence of God forever. So what do we do with that type of salvation? But we say, thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you. Over and over and over again. That's the response, isn't it? I'm convinced that we're in trouble as Christians when we stop saying thank you. When gratitude is no longer welling up inside of us anymore, we're in trouble in our faith. When grace stops being amazing, things are off track. How do you know when your gratitude for God's grace has dwindled? What are the signs, right? I think pride is probably a sign, a telltale sign that we're no longer thankful for what God's done for us. What is there to be proud of when you've wrecked your life so badly that God had to come down from heaven and rescue you? There's nothing to boast in. Maybe you've accomplished some things in your life. Great. The Bible says every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of light. She didn't do it. Whatever gifts, skills, abilities, resources you had to accomplish anything, God gave those to you. There's no room for pride in a grateful heart. Perhaps you are bitter. Do you have a bitter spirit this morning? You're always able to see the downside of a situation, always able to find the what could go wrong. Are you quick with a sarcastic comment or a negative word? I bet your lack of joy stems from forgetting all that you've been given in Christ. Maybe you battle covetousness. Covetousness is a Bible word that just means wanting other people's stuff. Right? When you've been given more than you could ever imagine in Christ, and you still want more, something's off, isn't it? Something's off in our hearts when that happens. I think it's a lack of gratitude. Perhaps you struggle with selfishness. You're incapable of seeing others' needs because you're always so wrapped up in your own needs. Grateful people don't have this problem. Grateful people say, wow, God has done so much for me. How can I do something for others? There are a hundred other ways that a lack of gratitude shows up in our life. In fact, Tim Keller, who's a famous theologian and author and pastor, passed away this past summer, commenting on this chapter, chapter two of Jonah, he says this. He says, our most severe problems are caused by an ignorance of the true depths of God's grace. Our most severe problems are caused by an ignorance of the true depths of God's grace. I think he's right. I think we can trace any problem we're facing, any battle we're fighting, any difficulty we're having, and if we trace it all the way down to its root, we can find that if we had a better handle on how gracious and kind God's given, or God's been to us, that problem might get a whole lot better. I want to encourage you this morning, church. The gospel is true. What I've shared with you this morning about what Jesus has done on the cross 
for your sins, about him rising from the dead three days later, it is true. You and I really were lost and without hope. You and I really were in such a bad situation that we could not work our way out of it. And God really did send Jesus to die on a cross for our sins. And as a result, we get to live eternally in the family of God, and we should never get over that. We should never get over that. Let's let that truth drive our entire life. Let's let it be the reason that we get up in the morning, the reason we parent, and the reason we go to work, and the reason we go to school, and the reason we have friendships and relationships, the reason we live lives of joy, because what Jesus has done for us, My hope for this Sunday and for every Sunday that we gather as a church that we would remind ourselves of what God has done for us and that we would leave from this place filled with gratitude and live in light of that. Yesterday we were cleaning house. And when I say we were cleaning house, my wife was working very hard. And I was yelling at the kids. One of the things Taylor asked the kids to do was, she said, hey, if you've got any toys that you haven't played with in a while, I want you to put them in a box and we're going to donate them. We're going to take them to Goodwill and, and give them away. And so my middle daughter began taking all my youngest daughter's toys and putting them in the box. <laughs> so we had to intervene there a little bit. This is something we'll do from time to time. You've probably done the same thing with your kids. And it never fails when we get to this point of giving away these toys, right? That all of a sudden the kids love these toys again. They've been in their closet for six months. They've been on a shelf. They've been under their bed. They haven't touched them since they got them for Christmas. And yet they go in the giveaway box, and now they're the coolest thing ever created. How does that happen? Familiarity breeds contempt, they say. My kids get used to the stuff they have, and it loses the power that it had when it was a brand new gift. When they open it on Christmas morning or for their birthday, it's the very thing their heart wanted and it satisfies all their greatest needs and they're filled with joy. And by New Year's, they forgot they got it. It's only when it's threatened to be taken away that they go, wait a minute, I remember how that felt. I want that back. We as Christians, many of us, have the same problem with our salvation. The free gift of salvation that God gave us. It warms our heart. It meets all of our needs. It fills us with joy when we receive it. Then we set it on a shelf and we focus on other things for a little while. And we wonder why our life is out of sorts. We wonder why we're not joy-filled people. We wonder why we're not satisfied anymore. We wonder why we're so bitter or arrogant. I want to submit to you this morning that a great solution might be to grab that gift again and remember all that you've been given in Christ. Remember who Jesus is and what he's done for you and let Gratitude, push those sinful things out of your heart. Gratitude has a way of doing that. It dispels everything else. When it fills our hearts, there's not room for any other thing. And we're able to live our lives guided by that light, guided by what God has done for us, guided by the truth of the gospel. And it changes everything. So as we close, there's just two questions, two really obvious questions you've got to answer this. Number one is, have you put your faith in Jesus? That's the obvious question, right? Have you put your faith in Jesus? Have you come to the place where you can acknowledge, I am in a desperate situation. I cannot get out of it. Lord, will you help me? And I want to beg you, if you're here today, if you're watching online and you have not put your faith in Christ, now's the time. God is there just like Jonah. He will answer you if you call out to him but it requires you giving up. It requires you saying, I'm not good enough. 
I can't fix it. I need help. That's hard to do. I recognize it's hard to do, but that is the necessary step for salvation. Edmund Clowney, he was a theologian, taught at several seminaries. He was actually Tim Keller's probably favorite professor, Tim Keller I mentioned earlier. Clowney was asked one time, he said, he was asked, hey, if, if there's one verse that you would use to summarize the entire Bible, what would you turn to? And Clowney is famous for responding, I'd turn to Jonah chapter 2, verse 9, the last line that says, salvation belongs to the Lord. In order to be saved, you've got to come to grips with the fact that salvation does not belong to you. You can't do it. Only Jesus can. Would you make that decision today if you have not? But if you are here, if you're here today and you are a believer, you have put your faith in Christ for salvation, my question for you is this. Is your salvation producing gratitude? Is your salvation producing gratitude? Do you feel thankfulness in your heart? As you look at your life and your circumstances and your surroundings and other people and what's going on, do you feel a sense of gratitude or do you feel a sense of disappointment? And it's okay to be bummed by some of the hard stuff in life. Life is hard. There's tough things going on in almost everyone's life here. But underneath that, we can walk through that tough stuff with joy because of what God has done for us. Is salvation producing gratitude in your heart? King David, in the Old Testament, his heart had grown calloused by his sin. And when he was confronted with that fact, he prayed a prayer to God, and he asked God this. He said, return to me the joy of my salvation and renew a steadfast spirit within me. That's a great prayer for us to start with today. If joy has left your life, if you're no longer great, grateful for your salvation, let's cry out to God and ask him to fill us anew with joy as we realize who he is and what he's done for us. So as we close, we're going to respond. The band's going to come back up and we're going to sing. Thank God for what he's done for us in Christ. We're also going to have an opportunity to pray. Pastor Matt and I will be up front. If you want to come pray, maybe you've never put your faith in Jesus, I would love to pray with you today. We'll do it right now. We'll solve that. Maybe you are a Christian, but the joy seems to have dissipated from your life. We'd love to pray with you for that as well. Or perhaps you have someone in your life that needs God to rescue them, that needs God to save them. We'd love to pray with you for that. Whatever it is, we'd love to pray with you as we respond to God's great mercy in Christ. Church, the gospel is true. Jesus is real. He has come. He has died on our cross. He has risen from the dead. And because of that fact, we can have hope and we can have joy. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the story of Jonah. We thank you for the example of Jonah. Lord, I know I personally see so much of myself in him. But God, the good news is that we not only see ourselves in this story, but we see you in this story. The same God who rescues Jonah rescues us. And you want to save. You want to step in. You want to intervene. And all you ask of us is that we cry out to you. And so Lord, help us to do that now. Whatever need we have in our life, whether it's a need for salvation, a need for renewal, a need for hope, a need for overcoming sin, Lord, will we cry out to you in faith, knowing that you stand ready to answer us. We love you, Lord. Thanks for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.